Thank you, Bethany. Love you guys. Man, I'm privileged to be here this morning. I feel like I'm standing among giants um, with Bethany and Daryl, with uh, Lou and Doug Stringer and Brian Kim, the people that are here. And I'm, I'm just really blessed and to have this honor to minister here this morning. And don't you love uh, Bethany and Daryl? They've laid down their lives for the call to see a house of prayer established here. And um, I guess you'll never, you'll never know the extent of that, what that means until you do it. And uh, I just want to honor you guys for laying down your lives. I know that, that at least in part having done a similar thing, the cost uh, and the price that you've paid, and I know that you don't view it that way. It's all for Jesus, but I appreciate and love you guys, and thank you. Um, well, I want to thank, too, I'm so blessed by the, the teaching and the ministry of both J-Hop and I-Hop. I feel like I feel like J-Hop and I-Hop have revitalized and taught the body of Christ how to pray again and is teaching the body of Christ how to pray again. I, among many things that they're called to do, I feel like that's part of the primary thing that I've gleaned. I've been out to I-Hop several times. I visit J-Hop occasionally when I'm able to. I'd like to do more. But I just feel like my prayer life has been reinvigorated by what they do. And I've encountered God through what you guys have done, through what they're doing with the International House of Prayer. And plug in. And, you know, I really believe God's emphasizing some things in the earth today. And one of those things is prayer. One of those things is worship. One of those things is missions. And one of those things, I believe, is church planting, as which they've asked me to come here and share about this morning. Um, I want to just tell you a little bit about my background, my family a little bit, so you can get to know me before I share with you about church planting. Um, my wife, Gina, we've been married for 11 years, and uh, I don't know how, how young I look to you, but people are usually surprised when I say I'm married 11 years. But if you get up close, I've got some gray hairs. You can check it out later. Um, but we have two children, Cole and Ava, seven and five. They're both homeschooled, and my wife is faithfully doing that as we speak right now. So um, we've been here in Boston now two years. Uh, before that, we were directing a network of campus ministries called Basic College Ministries. Anybody ever heard of Basic? A few of us. So we ministered in the Northeast primarily, about 30-some-odd campus groups. And what Basic did was we helped local churches in conjunction with their students to start campus ministries. So it was a local church-based campus ministry organization. And that's how I first came to Boston was, was through Basic. Um, so I feel like, I don't necessarily feel like I'm the most qualified church planter to tell you all about church planting. I've been at it two years now. There's people that have planted way more churches, people that have done a lot more things. And, but at the same time, I feel like I'm qualified in my walk with God to impart something to you today and hopefully stir something inside of you. Whether you're a church planter or not, I believe that you're going to receive something from the Lord. Whether you're called to plant a church or not, you're going to receive something from the Lord this morning. And I so appreciated last night. How many were here for Lou Engel last night? Man, Lou just awakens things in you, doesn't he? I, I love sitting under his ministry. I love being a part of the meetings. It's like things that God spoke to me years ago suddenly come alive or new things come alive. And I just really value and love that, and uh, I'm so thankful for his ministry as well. So I'm hoping the same thing will happen in you this morning. Um, I'm not Lou Engel, but I feel like something is going to be imparted to you this morning uh, in that sense. So I feel like the best thing that I can do this morning is kind of tell you our story. 
of how God called us, of what the journey has looked like a little bit, of what to expect. So I'm not going to necessarily teach you how to plant churches, okay? Because it starts with God awakening your heart. It starts with a calling that he awakens inside you. Some of you, I believe, in this room are called to plant churches. Some of you are called maybe to be on a team, a church planting team. So I want to I be careful to strike a balance between encouraging and stirring those that may be called to be a, on a church planting team or be called to plant churches and maybe helping you discover if you're not called to be a church planter. Because if you try to be a church planter and you're not called, anything in the kingdom, if you try to do something you're not called to be and to do, it leads to disaster. And church planting kind of has this stigma. There's some great things happening with it, but lately it's kind of the chic thing to do. You know what I mean? I'm telling you, church planting, especially the first two years, equals death to self. That's what you can expect the first two years. At the same time, I wouldn't trade it in for anything because God has the calling on my life to do that. And so I want to tell you our story. And in that story, I'm believing that God will encourage you, your heart and awaken something inside of you. So I had never been to Boston as of 2005. And I was in prayer. It was at the time I was directing basic college ministries. I was in prayer one day in my office, just seeking the Lord. And I had this vision. And I had this vision of a huge heart beating. It was placed over Boston, and it was pumping life in every direction. And in my heart, I said, well, that's odd. I've never even thought about going to Boston. We're in the Northeast, but we've never had any influence in Boston. And I just really need to go to Boston. Something's stirring there. And I agree with, with what everybody's saying, that even the name of this conference, Antioch again. Antioch was an equipping and sending center. I believe God is funneling people here simply to fill them with life, fill them with fire, fill them with the Holy Spirit, and send them out to the nations. Amen? And hopefully some of them will stay and help us labor with this too. But at the same time, there's this flow of life that's happening and is going to happen in increasing levels in Boston. Do you understand the time frame that we're in, not only in Boston, but on the earth right now? God is doing amazing things. Sometimes we think revival or an awakening needs to be like this mushroom cloud, like a bomb's dropped, it's a nuclear explosion, and we, everybody can see a mushroom cloud, right? But really... I think that revival often happens many times more progressively. It builds and it builds and it builds and it builds until we look and we say we're in revival. Some people say we're in revival already in the Boston area. Now, you may not see that with your tangible eye, but there's been this thing called the quiet revival that people have studied, and church planting in the Boston and New England area has increased exponentially since the 70s. There's things happening. There's things stirring. God does things beyond, the un, beyond our eyes and what we can see, and he's building it. I heard uh, John Melende minister once, and he was talking about the revival in Uganda. And he talked about how it started 10 years before that with two men that started going around to different villages in Uganda and neighboring countries and within 10 years, everywhere that they went, there was flames of revival spreading. And they looked back. Somebody said to them one day, do you realize we're in revival? And they, they started to look back over where God had called them and what was happening. They said, you're right. We're in revival. They didn't even realize right at that point that revival was happening. 
It's the nature of God. He does things like that many times that we can't see or we're not aware of. So stop looking at just the mushroom cloud like this big explosion over here, a big explosion over here. Sometimes they're just poofs. And it's just a brief momentary thing. But God wants to raise the water level here. He wants to keep taking it up and up and up and up and up until we realize the earth is filled with the glory of the Lord. Missiologists are saying that within 10 years, 10 to 20 years, that we will probably have preached the gospel in every nation on earth. We're talking prophetic stuff here, right? The gospel must be preached in all the earth before Jesus returns. Now, that's not the only thing. There's other things at play too, but things are happening. We're in a unique and dynamic time. And I believe that church planting is part of that. I believe it's one of the things that the Lord is emphasizing in this hour. Remember, Lou prayed and talked about last night a little bit about God revealing his his wisdom of spirit and revelation of what to do in the hour. And I believe part of the manifold wisdom of God right now is church planting. Up until, I believe it was two years ago, more churches were closing in the United States than churches that were opening. In the past two years, we finally surpassed that. There are now 4,000 churches opening in the United States every year, and there's 3,500 closing. Which, you know, it's not like we're making a ton of headway yet, but at the same time, there was more closing than opening just a few years ago, and that was the case all through the 90s. God is at work. God is doing something, and he wants us to be a part of it. So our journey to Boston, we had had the vision, saw the heart, made a trip to Boston, and interestingly enough, my second trip to Boston was when J-Hop was doing their 40 days. We actually, at the same time, were working with a guy named Bob Weiner and Isaiah Six and some other people, and we were doing some meetings over in Ruggles Baptist Church, and we had Lou come over and do a meeting with us, and we came to be a part of some of these meetings, but I was awakened at that moment. For, for me, Boston was like, how do I say it, this I don't know, a Mecca, I guess. It's a Mecca for college students. And for me, students are one of the things that make my heart come alive. I love students. And to come here, often the report when people came to New England and to Boston was, it's so dark. You know, it's so this, it's so that, it's dead spiritually, all these different things. And I came and I felt alive. I was like, this is like, I felt like what Bethany said, this is the center of the universe. This is awesome. I didn't know what God was doing in my heart, but I knew he was beginning to awaken something inside of me. So over the course of the next three and a half years, I came to Boston over 30 times, still not knowing that God had called us here. So kind of how it went down was every time I was here, it was like God would speak to me. It was like open heavens for me. Sometimes you know that you're, not all the time, but you know that you're called to a place. There's like, have you ever heard of the term a thin place? It's a, I think it's a Celtic term where there's not much room between heaven and earth. You feel like it's just an open heaven for you there. I felt like that every time I came to Boston. And God started speaking to me every time I was here. And it usually had to concern Cambridge and Harvard area. And kind of how it first happened was I was in a prayer meeting with some buddies and um, with uh, my friend David Hill Jr. over in the Fenway and my friend Justin Kendrick from Holy Fire. We just came to gather and pray together here. And uh, I felt like the Lord said, I want to use you at Harvard. I said, okay, Lord. So immediately our mind jumps to what we think that means, right? So me and my, in my prideful self thought, okay, God's going to usher me into the student body. I'm going to get to share the gospel. I'm going to get to go to the president's office and share the gospel with him or her. It's going to be wonderful. 
And then I get this vision of me camping in front of the gates of Harvard for three days to cry out in prayer. I said, that's not quite what I was expecting. <laughs> so I shared it with my friends, and uh, me and David Hill ended up for three days, this was 2007, camping in the Cambridge Common and interceding for six hours a day in front of the gates of Harvard. And I really believe that some of the seeds for what we're doing now were planted then at that time. See, his wisdom is not ours. God's wisdom seems foolish in the eyes of man. But I so value and love what the house of prayer is doing and what Lou was saying last night with prayer. We, we, we devalue prayer sometimes. We don't give it enough emphasis. Uh, at Journey Church, um, where we feel a mandate to be a house of prayer, that's what the church is, to be a house of prayer for all nations. So when we came here, we did not start a meeting immediately. The only meeting we started was a prayer meeting. And the Lord spoke to us, and he said, I want this thing to be birthed in prayer, to be bathed in prayer, and to be sustained through prayer. I really believe prayer has to be the fuel in the rocket. Okay, the church, the, the structure of the church, that's just a, that's a vehicle. But the vehicle has to have fuel. And prayer is that fuel. Worship and prayer is that fuel. And so... I think that the prayer movement, and there's already some of these things stirring, the missions movement and church planting have to unite in that way to see the kingdom come. I believe God is emphasizing those things in this hour, and we're blessed and privileged to be a part of it. So backtrack a little bit. We do our, we do our three days of prayer and fasting in front of the gates of Harvard. I kind of think it's all over. And uh, the next time in, I'm in Boston, the Lord speaks to me again, and he says, when I said I wanted to use you at Harvard, I didn't mean just one time. I said, okay. He said, I meant in an ongoing way. I said, so what does that mean? So I started to walk out. What does that mean, Lord? What are you saying to me? I volunteered myself to work, to come once a month. I was living at Rod in Rochester, New York at the time. Come once a month and just assist and help another work that was already started. That was my heart. That's what BASIC was doing. We were helping churches start campus ministries. I wanted to just come. I offered to volunteer myself to some people, and I started there still not knowing that I was called to be here. At the same time, things were stirring in me back in Rochester. I'd been directing BASIC for three years, and uh, the Lord began to speak to my, me and my wife that transition was coming. Transition was coming. And honestly, that was, a, that was a year of hell. We were tested in every area. God was taking us through trials and tribulations to strengthen our heart. How many know that when we stick it out in the trials and tribulations, our heart comes out strengthened? We come out strengthened. So we did that. It was a, over a year. We were wondering, what does this transition mean? God, you're not saying anything. What are you doing? We come to 2008. We're still feeling the same way. So we went to our board of directors. We said, this is how we're feeling. Transition's coming. They said, take the summer and pray about it and come back and tell us what you think. So we took three months to really just cry out to the Lord and ask him, what are you saying to us in this hour? And we came back, and the only thing that the Lord spoke to us was this, and I'll read it to you. And this isn't the most comforting thing to hear when you're in that place. It's Genesis 12, 1 and 2. Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you, and in, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
So the only thing that we knew to do that God was saying was step out to a land that I'll show you. And all that we knew to do to make that step at that moment was lay down our post as the directors of this ministry. We put in our one-year resignation. We wanted to help them find a new director, and we wanted to train them personally. That's what they asked us to do. We put in our one-year resignation without knowing what was coming next. So still didn't know where we were going. We come fast forward about three months after our resignation. God begins to reveal himself. God begins to speak, and here's how it happened for us. Um, One of our intercessors that prays for us regularly uh, I was traveling around preaching at different campuses, and I came to this campus in the town where she lived, and she came out. She said, I know there's transition happening. I got an email from you. You didn't mention a lot, but I knew before that even that something was going on. She goes, the only word that the Lord will give me for you is Boston. I said, okay. I said, I know Boston makes me come alive. I know there's some attachment there with me, but I don't know what it is. I'll pray about it. So nothing for a month. A month goes by, I'm sitting in my car with one of our board of directors with BASIC, and I start to tell him this story of what this intercessor had said. But before I get to the punchline, before I get to, she said, Boston, he shouted out, it's Boston. I said, how did you know that? He said, the Lord told me to tell you before you got to it so you'd know it's him. Had that happen a third time within two weeks. We didn't have to question after that. We knew that God was calling us to Boston. And church, as far as church planting, I'll give you some practicals as we go through this. It never had been like a, I just kind of always knew in the back of my heart that we were going to plant a church one day. God kind of had spoken to us on and off about the possibility of that, or even from the point of 2002, but it was just kind of a growing thing in my heart. It wasn't that he said, you're going to plant a church in Boston. It was like Boston, the place was there, and we knew we were going to plant a church, and I didn't have to ask where we were going to plant the church. I knew it was Harvard and Cambridge area immediately because that's where I had always been drawn to. Now, there's lots of different ways people come to that, that experience of where they're going to plant a church. Some people look at a map, and they pray over a map, and a place emphasizes itself to them. Some people just say, hey, go wherever it is that you'd want to live, and, and if you're called to plant a church, plant a church there, because the reality is they probably need a church. So there's everything from the spiritual, like God spoke to me to plant a church in this place, to, hey, if you're called to plant a church, go and do it where you want to live. I don't know how it's going to happen for you if you're called to do that. But God will make himself clear. That's what I know. And let me tell you something. You need to have a clear, sure sense of calling before you step out and say you're going to plant a church. It's the, it's the most difficult thing. I, I, say, I tell people all the time, marriage and church planting have been the two most challenging things I've ever done in my life. And if you're not called to plant a church and you step out to plant a church, if, you're, if your wife feels you're not called and you think you are, you're in trouble, I mean, you're going to tank quicker than you can imagine. The devil does not like church planting. Remember last night, Lou talked about Matthew 16. He talked about the gates of hell, how the, how the, uh, um, the church or the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. Let's just turn there for a minute. Kind of the main thought I want to give you this morning, and we'll, we'll get to in a minute, is I want to talk to you a little bit about the school of the wilderness. But I'm kind of just sharing this in story form and giving you some stuff in between. 
So Matthew 16, let's look at it. And it's starting verse 17. It's the same thing we read last night. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. On the rock of what? We talked about it last night. The rock of the revelation of who Jesus Christ is. And notice that Peter didn't know who he was. Peter wasn't defined by the Lord until he knew who Jesus was. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He's talking about authority. So this gates of hell stuff, the gates of hell, the gates are usually the primary place in a city where the attack is the heaviest. The gates are the place where schemes are hatched. The gates are the, are the place where councils are taken and shaped. And it says that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Gates are also a defensive measure. Walls are a defensive measure, right? So when we're advancing the kingdom, it means that we're taking the kingdom right to the very gates of hell and we're advancing it in the place where the attack is going to be most intense, Right? where the darkness is going to be most intense. We talked about that. We're called to go into the dark places. We're called to go into the places where things are the worst, where the darkness is the deepest, where where the challenges are the greatest, and bring the kingdom there. And the enemy does not, will not sit by and stand and watch us do that. He He ain't giving it up without a fight, all right? And there is going to be a fight. There's going to be warfare, and you better know that you're called to do it before you step into it. Whether you're called to be a lead pastor, whether you're called to be a part of a church planting team, I'm not trying to discourage you from doing it. I'm trying to, uh, I'm trying to be realistic about what you're going to encounter when you get there. He's not going to lay down and say, sure, head on in. Plunder hell and populate heaven. There you go. There's going to be a fight. And the greatest part is that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. See, for far too long, the church has been sitting on its hunches waiting for something to happen. Hunkered down, waiting for something to happen. And God's saying it's time for the church to rise up. It's time to do something that seems ridiculous. It's time to take the church to the gates of heaven or to the gates of hell right to that place and invade it. That's what church planting is really all about. So moving on in the story, we get to that place where um, we know that we're called to Boston. We we had put in our resignation. We're making preparations uh, to be here. And uh, we sell our home in Rochester. We had a nice four-bedroom home. Um, you know, had, I don't know if we were missionaries, so it's not like we had security the way that the world looks at it. But we laid down everything to move here into Boston. We came right into the city. We felt like, now there's lots of people. There's no shame if you don't live in the city, if you do live in the city. But we just felt like, man, we got to get to know the culture here. We have never lived here. We want to be right in the midst of it. We want to live in Cambridge where we're planting right then. And uh, that's what we did. We moved into a two-bedroom apartment um, right here near Central Square. And uh, we began prayer meetings. 
And out of that, God began to birth, uh, before that too, but a, a vision in us and what he wanted to see happen here through us. Our vision is that people will encounter Jesus Christ in a life-changing way. It's simple. I like what, um, I think it was, uh, who's the guy that started Teen Challenge? Uh, David Wilkerson, right? His grandpa said this. He said, encounter with God means one thing, life change. When you really encounter Jesus Christ, when you, I mean, when you really meet him, your life will be changed and you will be ruined for anything less. That's what we want to happen in people's lives. That's what we want to happen in Cambridge. We want it to happen through you guys. We want it to happen through us, through anybody that's preaching the gospel, because the gospel means life change. The cross, when we really embrace what Christ did there and we see it and God opens up our eyes, we can't live our life the same way. That's the reality. For those of you that don't know, Cambridge itself has a 2% church-going population. That's kind of like Japan or China, if you're not familiar with the different rates of numbers of believers and numbers of people that go, and go to church. We are in a mission field. New England has the same statistics. Around 2% go to church. And we get to be a part of that. And it's going to change. It's going to change, I guarantee it. I'm hearing stories every day about church planters that are moving to the city from all over the nation, from all over the world, to plant churches in Cambridge, Boston, New England. Well, let's transition a little bit and talk about the preparation. We talked a little bit about the calling. You need to be called. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the preparation for church planting or for any ministry for that matter. Um, we, can, we can kind of put it across the board. So I want to spend a lot of time on this and, and kind of probably close in this section. So there's a natural preparation for church planting. There's things like church planting boot camps. There's coaches. There's all this stuff. There's all this methodology on how to plant churches. But that's not what I want to tell you about today. I want to talk to you about the school of the wilderness, Because it's in the wilderness that God will form the man or the woman that you are. And that's what's going to sustain you when you get into the battle and you're bombarding the gates of hell. It's not going to be the methodology training you had. Some of those things will help. It's not going to be, it's not going to be all the structures that you learned or the systems that you learned. It's going to be, have you been trained in the school of the wilderness? Has God honed your character to be like his? And so there is a natural preparation, and I'm not downing that. You should do those things. If you're called to plant a church, you should get every bit of training that you can get. But even more importantly, the school of the wilderness. Look at, let's turn to Luke chapter 1, 80. I want to talk about a guy named John the Baptist for a little bit. Luke chapter 1, verse 80. You didn't even know there was a verse 80 in Luke chapter 1, did you? I didn't either until I saw it. Luke 1, 80. I love what it says about John the Baptist here. It says, So the child grew, and he became strong in spirit, and he was in the desert till the day of his manifestation to Israel. He was in the desert until the day of his manifestation to Israel. Some versions say he... um, Actually, am I in the right? Yeah. Some versions say he waxed strong. It means, basically, here's what was happening. He was growing and waxing strong. He was being empowered... He was increasing in vigor, and he was being strengthened. That's what that means when it says he was waxed strong in the wilderness. 
It says also that he not only grew strong and became strong, but it was in spirit. So the concept is the same as John chapter 4 when Jesus tells us we need to worship in spirit and truth. You remember that? What's it mean to worship in spirit? What's it mean he grew strong in spirit? It means that he grew in his obedience and his trust to the Holy Spirit. So he was able to not just hear all the voices that were happening around him in culture because he was secluded in a sense, because God was strengthening him and invigorating him and empowering him, he was able to learn how to trust and obey the Spirit. And that is going to be invaluable to you in any ministry that you do, whether you're called into the school system, whether you're called to plant a church, whether you're called into the business world, learning to trust and obey the Spirit is what's going to give you success. Interestingly enough, what they said about John the Baptist was the same thing that they said about Jesus in Luke 2:40. It says the child grew strong and became strong or grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. I don't know about you, but I want that spiritual DNA. If, if anybody says anything about me, I, wanted to, I would love for people to say the same thing about me as they said about Jesus and John the Baptist. That would be awesome. And the wilderness, when you're in the wilderness, God will grow you in strength, in vigor, and in spirit, and you'll become strong. If you'll stick in. Because the temptation in the wilderness is the same one that Jesus had. Go ahead and eat the bread, Jesus. Make that stone into bread. Go ahead and bow down to me. The temptation, the wilderness gets so intense at times that it's all you, you want to back out. You put in your resignation to God sometimes. And then you realize he's the one that called you. It's up to him when to call it quits. And probably he's not going to say call it quits. He's definitely not going to say call it quits on him. If you made a mistake, that's a different story if you need to call it quits and back off of something. But when you're in the wilderness and it gets intense, if you'll stick in there, if you'll just, sometimes you feel like you're hanging on by your fingernails. If you'll do that by the grace and the strength of God, you'll come out strong in spirit, invigorated, empowered, and be able to hear and discern the voice of the Spirit. Let's look at John the Baptist for a minute, because I want to kind of go over with you what the wilderness does in our lives, the fruit that it produces. So let's turn to Isaiah 40. Now, you all know this passage. I know you do. I know that you talk about it a lot. Isaiah 40, and let's look at verses 1 through 5. It's echoed in the New Testament as well when people ask John the Baptist who he was. But it says this. Um, We'll start in verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. So this is John the Baptist's calling. He was the one that preceded Jesus. His calling was to make every, raise every valley up, make every mountain low. It sounds a lot like if you humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, he will lift you up. But God opposes the proud, right? So part of the calling of a forerunner, part of the calling of a person who's been through the wilderness, part of their calling of a church planter, I believe, is to, um, is to raise up every valley. Well, it's God's part to raise up every valley and bring down everything low. But when you speak, you're often calling people to repentance. 
I mean, if a preacher, if a church planter, if a pastor, if a person in, in ministry, in whatever sense, if we're not called to bring people to repentance, what are we called to do? Yes, absolutely. First and foremost, we're called to minister to Jesus. We're called to be in intimacy with God. We're called to walk with him and relate to him. And out of that, what was the first thing John said? It says he started preaching repentance. He started preaching repentance. John the Baptist had a voice, didn't he? He had a voice that carried authority with it. When you walk through the wilderness and God hones you and shapes you, your voice will have authority. It won't just be like all the other voices that get drowned out with the crowd. John the Baptist's voice carried authority. It carried weight with it because he had been honed in the wilderness. He had gone through the school of the wilderness until the day of his manifestation. Let's look at Luke chapter 1. And we'll turn to verse 15. It's the same concept, but a little different uh, emphasis on it. Luke 1, 15. Get there. I told my wife that we're, she's starting to come on board, but our next child, if it's a boy, is being named John, and this is the verse that we're basing his life on. Luke 1, 15 through 17. She's getting there. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he'll turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. I love that passage. And that puts a little different light on it because it's turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And it usually says turn the hearts of the children to the fathers, but it says turn the wisdom or turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. There's a calling on people that go through the wilderness and stand with it to turn hearts of the fathers to the children and children to the fathers to preach repentance and see the disobedient turn to the wisdom of the just. When you go through the wilderness, you find out what's really important. And the the things that aren't so important begin to fall off your life. And you see God for who he is. And you see him for who he's made you to be. And you see the calling that he has on your life. And this was John the Baptist. Then in John 5.35, you don't have to turn there. It says that he was a burning and shining lamp. How many of you would like to be labeled a burning and shining lamp? I know that I would. And what was he doing? He was a burning and shining lamp illuminating the way to Jesus Christ. That was his calling. He said, I must decrease, he must increase. That's our calling. That we must decrease and he must increase. We want to be burning and shining lamps, illuminating the way to Jesus Christ. I don't care if you remember me today. I don't care if you ever say my name in your head again. What I care about is did I illuminate the way to Jesus Christ in your heart? Did your heart come alive with something I said? Is there a burning and shining lamp in your heart coming alive for Jesus that wants to point other people to him? That's what I care about. The wilderness will make us burning and shining lamps if we'll let it. You see, God uses many different ways as wilderness in our lives. And wilderness basically equals death to self. That's what it's all about. And it's about these other things that I've been sharing about. But 
So for me, um, first, kind of how the wilderness came or this honing came was when I kind of stepped into ministry after college. I, w- I was working a full-time job. I got involved in youth ministry. I, have to, I had to begin to lay down other things. And there was a pressing. There was a, it, it was hard at that time for a while. There was joy in it too, but it was just like a God used it to some of the things to fall off my life that needed to fall off. And then I got married. And it's hard to maintain self when you're married and you need to focus on another person. So God used that to bring death to self and joy to me. Because every time we bring death, every time God brings death to self, it equals joy for us as well, if we'll embrace it that way. And then uh, planting a church that was, well, actually, then it was kids. Because once you have kids, you realize you lose more of yourself. And then planting a church was like, God, I don't know if I can lose any more. And he's saying, yes, you can. (laughs) Yes, you can. Because he wants you to come to the point where you're dead in your flesh. Because God cannot produce spirit out of flesh. If you're called to plant a church, if whatever you're called to do, it will not be birthed in spirit if you try to do it in the flesh. Flesh yields flesh. Spirit yields spirit. I want you, in a loving way, to be at the bottom, be six foot under at the bottom of a grave looking up saying, the only way that I'm getting out of this is if Jesus resurrects me. That's what we need is resurrection. That's what I need is resurrection. I want to come to the point, and even recently believe I have come to that point where I said, Lord, I, if you keep asking if you're dead, you're probably not yet. When you're dead, you'll know it. And I believe Jesus will let us get to that point because he wants to resurrect us. How can you experience resurrection in life if you're not dead? Lazarus had to be dead before Jesus resurrected him. He did it for the glory of God, he said. He was four days in the grave. I want resurrection. I want death to self. I want death to my flesh. And I want to be resurrected. So let John the Baptist encourage us Some of you are in the desert and you're in the wilderness right now. And I know it's hard because I've been there and many of you have. And you're wondering, like, when is the day going to come? When is my manifestation like John the Baptist? When is it going to come, Lord? And we keep asking. We're saying, we're in the wilderness. When are you going to deliver, God? There's so many things in my heart. I'm burning to do this thing you've put in my heart. When is it going to surface, God? But I just want to encourage you today. God knows where you are. And when he's ready to come find you from the wilderness and call you out, he will do it. He found David when he was up in the field shepherding the sheep and killing lions and bears, preparing. And he said to his dad, don't you have any other sons? Well, there's David, but he's up in the field. Well, God didn't forget about him. I felt like that. I remember when I was working uh, for the county health department, I was a youth pastor at the time, and I literally, in some ways, I felt like David because I was up on the, I lived in the country, like really tiny area, and I designed septic systems, okay? 
And so I would be out in the middle of the field because people built houses all over in these, you know, in the woods, in the country, and they had to all have a sewage system. I'm out in the middle of the fields. I'm saying, God, when are you going to call me? When can I actually do what you've made me to do? Like, I'm crying out, God. I'm, I feel like I'm all alone up here. Do you even know I'm here? He knew I was there. See, my prayer has always been to God, don't let me go or get to a place where my character can't keep me. I've seen too much of that. You've seen too much of that. I don't want to be in a place where my character is not prepared to handle. And the wilderness will make sure that your character can handle the calling, that your character can match the calling that God places on your life. You see, when you come out, you'll come out with a voice You'll come out with authority. You'll come out with power. You'll come out with strength. You'll come out being invigorated. And you'll do successfully what God has called you to do. Don't despise the wilderness today. Embrace it. I know that we despise it sometimes. Sometimes I do really well with it, and other times I do terrible. Sometimes I say, yes, God, whatever you want to do in me, do it. And other times I'm kicking and screaming while he's dragging me to do it. Like my five-year-old daughter. Don't despise it. Embrace it. It's for your good. It's for my good. Let me give you a couple examples of this, and then we'll close with this. Any person that God used significantly has had to go through the wilderness. Remember David? He had a great experience up front. He was anointed by Samuel. He started to be in the king's court and walk with Saul. He began to lead some of the armies and go out and do battle. And the songs started to be sung. David is slain as ten thousands and Saul as thousands. But as soon as Saul became jealous, David was forced into a cave for seven years. David went into the wilderness because God had to hone his character and hone who he was before he could place him in the kingship of Israel. He went from the cave to being the king. That's the same thing that happened to Joseph. He went from prison to being the second in charge. Don't underestimate the power of the wilderness. If you're in the wilderness right now, it's for a reason. And the larger you're calling, the longer you're going to have to be there. The more flesh that's inside that God has to get rid of, the longer you're going to have to be there. Moses was on the backside of a mountain for 40 years before God called him out. He knew where he was, and when it was time, he came and found him. Paul, after the point where he um, was converted, it was 12 or 13 years before he began to walk in his calling. Some of you, I can see it, you're chomping at the bit. I understand, I've been there. But don't underestimate the power of the wilderness. I know, I know because I'm a visionary and I'm a, I'm a, I want to just go after it. I see a crack in a door and I'm ready to dive through it, but it's not always time. It's not always time. And I've learned that the hard way sometimes. And my wife has really helped me learn that as well because I know by now that if she's not on board, I'm not going and oftentimes I'll say, I see this. Let's do it. She's like, I'm, I'm not feeling it, honey. I'm not, I'm not there. But God will always open. I guarantee if you wait on the Lord, he'll open up something greater. When, I, when we were um, thinking about going on staff with BASIC, I was thinking about doing their campus missionary program, which is you raise your support, you stay under your local church, and you act as a missionary to the campus and your community. And uh, I said, honey, I'm ready to do this. Let's do it. Like, you know, I was ready yesterday. And she's like, I'm just not feeling it. And I was a little discouraged at first, but I said, okay, well, if you're not, we'll have to wait till the Lord calls. And six months later, 
I'm in a conversation with the associate director, and the director had stepped down. He said, what do you think about being the director of the whole ministry? Now, I didn't necessarily want or aspire to that, but it was God. When you wait on God and let him hone you, he'll do things far greater than your mind can imagine. Some of us say, God, I want the calling right now. Put me into the fullness of my calling. I love you, but that's such a naive prayer. If God put you into the fullness of your calling in the state that you were in right now, it would kill you. He doesn't work that way. He builds step on on top of step. He starts with the foundation of intimacy in God with your life. What some of you are doing right now, laying down your life to be intimate with him and saying, I don't care about anything else. I don't care if I ever do anything else. I want to be with you. And out of that intimacy will come fruitfulness if you'll stay there. If you'll stay there. Wilderness is about death. It's about the cross. It's about resurrection. It refines us. It proves us. It tests us. It qualifies us. We come out lean, resourceful, sharp, obedient, trusting, not dulled by the world with a powerful prophetic voice. And the world needs a powerful prophetic voice. Um, Will, if you could just come up. If you're in the, in the crowd somewhere there, there you are. I want to re- close with this. I love what A.W. Tozer said. I want to just read it to you. He said, prophets, the article is called Prophets, Not Orators. The Christian minister, as someone has pointed out, is a descendant not of the Greek orator, but of the Hebrew prophet. The differences between the orator and the prophet are many and radical, the chief being that the orator speaks for himself while the prophet speaks for God. The orator originates his message and is responsible to himself for its content. The prophet originates nothing but delivers the message he has received from God, who alone is responsible for it. The prophet being responsible to God for its delivery only. The prophet must hear the message clearly and deliver it faithfully. And that is indeed a grave responsibility, but it is God alone, not to men. Uh, Richard Soom said this, when your people sit in front of you on Sunday morning, they're not interested in hearing another man tell them how to live their lives. They've come to hear a word from God. Let's stand to our feet right now. I want to open up the altar. If you feel like you're just in that wilderness place and you need an encouragement, a touch from the Lord, we... All along the wilderness, God will be faithful to give us hope in that process. I also want to open up the altar. If you feel like you're called to um, either be a part of a church planting team or are called to possibly plant a church, I want you to just come up and I want to pray for you. Can we do that? All right.